Happy New Year. Hey, with the new year in this second service, we're going to be um, in the not too distant future. I don't know exactly when this is going to begin, but on Grace FM on 88.7, we're going to begin to do a live broadcast of this service. Now, because we're doing a live broadcast of this service, we might need to make some adjustments as far as the worship and the word, because it's going to be on from 11 o'clock to um, to 12 o'clock. So in the first service, I'm sort of doing the director's cut. In the second service, you're the made for TV movie version. But, um, you know, I. I hate to use you as an experiment, but I've taken precautions to make sure that nobody gets seriously hurt. So um, we, we might be making some adjustments. And as we make the adjustments, we're obviously going to let you know. But uh, we we pray that that uh, Grace FM 88.7 is just a wonderful outlet for Calvary and for Calvary Ministries all up and down the front range. If you haven't had a chance to listen, I would encourage you to do so. Some great Bible teachers are on throughout the week. And um, with that, Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. And I'm going to pray that nobody walks out on me. Here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word made flesh and the word of God. Lord, we thank you that there is grace and mercy and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we know that you are righteous and holy, that you are love and that you are just. And that, Lord, you retain these attributes without compromising or diminishing any of the others. And that, Lord, because you are so loving and so just, that you're able to satisfy your love and your justice in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be willing to say to us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter writes, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. In the second chapter of Second Peter, we find the apostle writing about false teachers and false teaching. The chapter begins... And continues 
with their identity and then a description of their iniquity and then an illustration of their condemnation. He paints a picture in the Old Testament of a series of judgments. The fall of angels in verse 4. The flood of Noah in verse 5. And the findings of guilt for the cities on the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 6, 7, and 8. And then reminds the reader that judgment is certain in verse 9. In the passage, Peter describes the judgment of God and the judgment on sin and the judgment of the false teachers as swift in verse 1, sure in verse 3, certain in verse 9. Does anything about that sound ambiguous to you? Really? You see ambiguity in the passage? I don't. Sin being judged swiftly, surely, and completely doesn't sound ambiguous to me. Contrast that with the contemporary ideas of God's judgment. You know what? We could ask three simple words. It constitutes one question. Will God judge? The answer is pretty simple. It is either yes or no, isn't it? For many people, the way they deal with the Bible's teachings concerning judgment is to dismiss the whole thing as nonsense. The way that they would read Peter's words, they would say, angelic beings judged, that's nonsense. Um, Extinction, if you will, of the ancient world, that's nonsense. Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's nonsense. That these are myths and legends that were fabricated in order to bring people into a sense of fear and condemnation. But that doesn't seem to be what the Bible is saying. Some people might be willing to concede that there's a God. Some people might be willing to concede that there is a God and that he is in fact love and that he is in fact just. They're willing to concede that he might judge wicked and immoral beings like Satan or Hitler or people who are on Fox News. But he will give an unconditional pass to those who did their best or perhaps were misled or misguided or mistaken. But a fair reading of all of the scripture tells us that that doesn't seem to be the case. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, we read these astonishing words, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. If God hates it when human beings pervert justice, if God hates it when human beings are willing to let the guilty go and free and punish the innocent, doesn't it make sense to you that if God condemns human beings for refusing to embrace justice and for punishing innocence, how could the God of the Bible be anything other than just himself? 
The weight of the scripture provides a, a, a constant witness. In Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 27, the prophet writes, I will deal with them according to their conduct, and by their own standards I will judge them. In Ezekiel, the Bible says that God watches carefully and records specifically and is willing to evaluate thoroughly people. And then in Ezekiel, remember what it says, and I will judge them by their own standards. What if your standard isn't the Ten Commandments? What if your standard isn't the Old Testament revelation? What is your standard? Do you have any standard whatsoever? Is there anything inside of your heart that says this is right and this is wrong? And typically you will create a standard as it applies to you. Do you like it or do you hate it when people lie to you? Do you like it or do you hate it when people steal from you? Do you like it or do you hate it when people act unjustly and unfairly and wickedly? Is there anything that you would say is right and is there anything? thing that you would say is wrong. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, it says man is destined to die once and then face judgment. So what does Jesus have to say about all of this? In John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, this is what the Lord Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, this Jesus, this loving Jesus, this Jesus who seems to have gotten it all right. He says, moreover, the father judges no one. But has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Here's what Jesus said. I came from heaven and the father sent me. It's Jesus's words that God has entrusted to Jesus the full and the final evaluation of what's to be done. The Bible teaches that God has set aside a day. He's appointed a time where God will judge the world by Jesus. When every human being will receive an appropriate reward or an appropriate punishment according to who they are and what they've done, the wicked will experience everlasting punishment. The righteous will experience everlasting life. And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus doesn't simply judge you on the basis of what you did. But Jesus will judge you on the basis of what you failed to do. What you could have done. And didn't do. In the passage, Peter makes it clear that whatever else you might think about the false teacher, whatever else you might think about the false doc, the, the false prophet, whatever else you might think about the, that they might be misguided, that they might be misled, that they might simply be misunderstood. Peter makes it clear that God will judge them. The words by the way, provided hope and comfort to all the saints who were living under the constant threat of pain and persecution and destruction for the false teachers and the false teaching. The demands of the gospel might have seemed overwhelming or crushing or limiting. You see, for the false teacher who says there is no God, for the false teacher who says, well, if there is a God, he doesn't care what you do. 
Or if there is a God and he doesn't care what you do, then he certainly doesn't care what I do. And if there is a God and if he doesn't care what I do, then that means my actions won't be judged. That there is no such thing as sin. If, if Genesis is true and if the Bible is true and if rebellion and disobedience took place and if the problem that human beings face is that they're sinners in need of a savior. Then Peter's teaching in the whole New Testament becomes nonsensical. The words of Peter promised justice for the oppressed. But for some reading the letter, the words were a warning and a threat because some people might want to philosophically engage the idea of will God judge. But when you add one more sentence, it becomes really problematic. Or one more word. Will God judge me? What if I've wondered from the truth? Won't God save people who are mistaken, confused, misguided or misled? Doesn't God love people enough to grade on a sliding scale? Won't God postpone or cancel the final judgment for lack of interest? I mean, after all, what if nobody wants to be judged? And Peter writes in verse four, for if God, this is the hypothetical syllogism, the if and the then for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Peter draws attention to the fact that the angels sinned and then he draws attention to the fact of the angels suffering. You might say, where do you see suffering and delivered them into chains of darkness? Are the chains just simply a metaphor to describe some sort of unwelcome, unwanted punishment? Why doesn't God just forget about it? Why doesn't he just let it go? Why doesn't he just say, look, you've made a mistake and we'll just sort of let it slide. Why does God insist on bringing about a just resolution to the problem of rebellion and disobedience? Why doesn't he just forget it and move on? And the question requires God to simply dismiss those who knew the truth, but rejected the truth and To even include those who knew the truth, rejected the truth, but they were not only willing to know the truth and reject the truth, but they fabricate a lie in place of the truth and then solicit people to believe the lie. What do you do? What do you do with people who have promoted lies and with the net result that those who believe those lies remain under the condemnation of sin and eternal judgment? And it would seem whatever it is and however it began, it would seem that sin and rebellion didn't begin in the human heart and it didn't begin on the human planet Earth. But sin began in heaven and sin began in the most unlikely of places that you can imagine. In the heart of an angel. A perfect being. A glorious being, a being of light. 
You see, a proper understanding of judgment in the Bible requires at least some understanding, even a, a, a minuscule understanding of God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's love and, and God's sense of justice. Imagine a being perfect in appearance, perfect in composition, perfect in every detail. And the being says, I reject God. I reject his love. I reject his authority. Chuck Colson wrote, quote, the doctrine of hell is not just some dusty theological holdover from the unenlightened Middle Ages. It has significance and social consequences. Without ultimate justice, people's sense of moral obligation dissolve. Social bonds are broken. People who have no fear of God soon have no fear of man and no respect for human law and human authority, unquote. But I would go one step further and say without ultimate justice, not only are people's sense of moral obligation dissolving, not only do social bonds break, not only do they have no fear of God, and not only do they have no fear of man, then they have no sense of sin. It becomes a nonsensical subject. It becomes a meaningless use of words. Right loses its meaning and wrong loses its meaning. And the scriptures teach that Lucifer and certain angels are under God's judgment. Jude 6 says, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto judgment of the great day. There's the reappearance of the word chains in Jude 6. Second Peter chapter 4 delivered them into chains of darkness and whatever else chains mean, they were usually applied to people who wanted to be set free. You don't chain people who are under no obligation or sensibility. You don't chain people unless you want to limit their movement. So what is their punishment? When he says that he's reserved under darkness, under judgment for that great day, what is their punishment? Whatever that punishment is, it's spoken of in the book of Revelation, and it seems to include a lake which burns with fire and brimstone. The beast and the false prophet are cast into this lake at the beginning of the millennium. And guess what? When we make our way through the text and a hundred years have gone by and five hundred years have gone by and nine hundred years have gone by and a thousand years have gone by, guess where they still are? They're still in that same lake. No person less than Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus minimum believed that there was a fire that was prepared for the devil and for the angels and Jesus himself used the word everlasting to describe that fire. It's, by the way, the same word that he uses to describe everlasting life. So if everlasting fire means temporal fire, then guess what? Everlasting life could mean temporal life. 
It was Walter Martin who wisely said, if there is no hell, there's probably no devil. And if there is no devil, there's probably no sin. And if there is no sin, there's probably no savior. John Bunyan said, quote, then I saw that there was a way to hell. Even from the gates of heaven. The Bible says there seems to be a way to hell from the heart of an angel. And there is a way to hell from the gates of heaven. Is there a way to hell from the gates of Eden? And is there a way to hell from the human heart? And if God did not spare the angels, if the God of heaven and earth didn't spare angelic, luminous beings of their rebellion and their 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 resistance and their insistence on refusing the sovereignty of God, will he ignore the false teachers and their false teaching? That's Peter's point. By the way, there are three Greek words that are translated hell in the New Testament, of particularly the authorized version. The first is Gina or Gehenna, which means hell. And it's so translated in most translations, it occurs 12 times in the New Testament, seven times in Matthew, three times in Mark, one time in both Luke and James. And the word is very interesting as far as from the, the meaning and the origin of the word. You see, for those of you who ever have an opportunity to go with me to Jerusalem, we go to this plateau and the plateau is surrounded by valleys. There's a valley on the south side. There's a valley on the north side. There's a valley on the east side and the west side and the south valley that runs outside of Jerusalem was called the Valley of the Son of Kinnon. In the days of Ahaz and Manasseh, two wicked kings of Judah, they practiced a peculiar form of human sacrifice to the god Molech. It's found in 2 Chronicles 28.3 and 2 Chronicles 33.6 and Jeremiah 32.35. This Middle Eastern deity was represented in the form of a bronze statue with an open mouth wherein you would put in fire. Its extended arms would form a cradle and the people in the ancient world would place their children on the molten arms of the bronze image and the child would fry and then be consumed as a burning sacrifice in their wicked theology they believed that sacrificing their children to these gods would ensure prosperity and the certainty of, of a reality where crops would come and grow, the rains would come, and there would be prosperity and abundance. The good king Josiah defiled the place in 2 Kings 23.10, and it became the place where the residents of Jerusalem began to toss their garbage and their trash, and as the garbage and the trash would build up. The fires burned day and night. I don't know if you've ever been to a trash dump. When I was a kid growing up, we would haul our own trash away. We would go to the middle of the desert and we would dig a hole and we would bury our trash and we would burn our trash. 
I've been to a village in East Africa, just outside of the metropolitan area of Nairobi. And there is a whole neighborhood that consists of half a million people. And it's like a gigantic dump. It's like one large stretch of sewage and filth and constant burning and the fires would burn day and night and it became a euphemism in the ancient world to be the place that described the place of final judgment a place of punishment and Jesus uses that very term 11 times in the New Testament the second word translated hell is Hades and that word also appears 11 times in the Greek New Testament. It's translated hell 10 times in the authorized version. But one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, it's translated the grave or the portal. Hades, by the way, was the name that the Greeks used to assign the brother of Zeus and the offspring of Kronos to rule over the place of the departed dead. And so in the ancient world, it could be used to describe the proper name of the god Hades, but it could also be used to describe the portal or the door or the entryway into which the living passed and went to the place of the dead, whether it describes the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. The word would sometimes use to to be used to describe generically like you and I use the term when a relative dies or a loved one dies and we're uncertain of their destination. We just simply use the term they passed on. They passed over. They went somewhere. They're not here, but they went somewhere. So it was often generically used to describe the afterlife. And so that is one of the reasons why in the Apostles' Creed, when the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross for my sins, who descended into hell. It's using the Greek word Hades, which means a real Jesus really died and he went to the place where dead people go. But I think it means the the place of the righteous dead, because remember, he says to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. But this word here, this word here in verse four, but cast them down to hell isn't Hades and it isn't Gehenna. This this word here is only is the only word of its kind in the Greek New Testament Translated hell. Peter uses the word tartarosis. It's really in what's called the aorist participle of tarturo. And so it meant to cast down, throw down, pitch down to hell. The verb is related to the noun. The noun is tartaros. The Greeks used this dark place, this wicked place, this evil place as the place of the unrighteous dead. In the apocryphal book of Enoch, in chapter 20, verse 2, the apocryphal writers use it that way. It's used as the place of the punishment of fallen angels. It's used that way here. In English, we, have, we actually have just simply borrowed the Latin form, Tartarus. But it meant 
a dark, wicked place of punishment. And in verse 5, Peter writes, and did not spare the ancient world. Look again in verse 4. Did not spare the angels. Look again in verse 5. Did not spare the ancient world. Well, why can't God be merciful? Why can't God be forgiving? Why can't God just simply pretend that it didn't happen? Because God is just. Look what it says in 2 Peter 2.5. But saved Noah. I'm thinking about writing a book called Big Butts in the Bible. I think it could catch on. The reason being the contrast is so dramatic. It is so amazing. It is so different. But Saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. There seems to be a mechanism whereby people who are sinners can be saved. The Greek word translated flood, by the way, is one that you're all going to know. It's the word cataclysmos. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Cataclysmos. It's, we've adopted a word in our own language. Cataclysm. The noun form comes from the verb cataclizo. In the Greek world, it described a flood, an inundation, a deluge. And by the way, that's the way the noun is always translated in the New Testament. Here and in Matthew twenty four thirty eight, Matthew twenty four thirty nine, Luke seventeen twenty seven. Whenever you see the word flood, it's this word, and it seems specifically to refer to a historical event. Genesis seven twelve, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The Lord didn't spare the angels. The Lord didn't spare the ancient world. Why? Why? Remember, God looks out onto the ancient world and he says, I see into their heart and I see the circumstances of their heart and I see the circumstances of their life. And I notice that it's only wickedness continually. As a matter of fact, as I peer into the imagination of every human being, I see nothing other than the pure presence of wickedness and evil. And so the Bible says one of the most remarkable sentences in all of the sentences in all of the Bible. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How did this one person find a way out? What was it about Noah that God's grace rested upon him? What was it about Noah and his wife and his three children and their three daughters that God would make a mechanism whereby judgment could be at least stalled? And a way of escape made. You know, it's interesting to me. No wonder the false teachers say, the Bible's not true. 
Adam and Eve aren't real. There's no such thing as sin. Noah's flood. You're kidding me, right? This is a mythological construct that certainly is shared by most of the world's cultures, but it certainly couldn't be true. Could it? Could it? You see, they missed the point. The point isn't just simply that it's true, but the reason why it's true. There was a mechanism of inundation whereby a just God brings judgment on a watching world. Jonathan Edwards preached almost 300 years ago. You have been once more warned today while the door of the ark yet stands open. You have, as it were, once heard the knocks of the hammers and the axe in the building of the ark to put in mind that a flood is approaching. Take heed, therefore, that you do not still or stop your ears or treat these warnings without a regardless heart and still neglect the great work which you have to do lest the flood of wrath suddenly come upon you and sweep you away and there is no remedy. People used to preach like that. They used to say stuff like that. He paints a picture of a real God and real judgment and real redemption. And in verse 6, he says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Look at that word particularly turning and then into ashes because they are all one word. We separate it in order to make sense of the passage. But turning into ashes is one word, tephrosos. It's again the aorist participle of tephru. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. It's from a noun that the Greeks word tephra. It was ashes. And one Greek writer uses this exact same word to describe a violent eruption that takes place on Mount Vesuvius as it begins to belch ash and sulfur and lava and it runs down the side of the mountain and it goes through the gullies and the plains and the people who used to be there are consumed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Their bodies are vaporized and the ash entombs them in a solid cemetery-like circumstance. Peter notes, That it's God who condemned them to destruction. Does God condemn anyone or anything to destruction? Peter writes, well, if you count the angels and you count the ancient world and you count Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a pattern of judgment beginning to emerge here, don't we? In Genesis chapter 18 and 19, remember, it describes two cities given over, completely over to sin. And when Abraham prayed, remember, in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, the Lord shows up with two of his angels. They're going to execute judgment on the cities of the plain. And Abraham says, look, I don't mean to be rude and I don't mean to be forward and I don't mean to be presumptuous. But if if there are 30 people who are righteous in this vast metropolitan area, would you consider sparing the two cities? And the Lord said, yeah. Again, 
No offense, but if there are only 20, would you do it? Sure. How about 15? Okay. And then Abraham starts to do the math. Lot, his wife, two girls, their husbands. Surely they've made some sort of difference. Surely something has changed. Surely, surely there are at least ten human beings who have rejected their sin and embraced God. Surely there are ten people who are sensitive to and aware of their sin and their need for God. And they have come to a place where they believe that there's really such a thing as a real God who loves them and who can't abide with sinfulness. If there are ten people, will you spare them? Sure. But there aren't. The Lord, it says, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord. It says from the Lord. It's from the Lord. There are those people who say a meteoritic material bombed the particular area and they vaporized. And these primitive people who didn't know any better just simply chalked it up to the judgment of God. The cities were burned. And then the cities were buried. Some Bible scholars believe that there was an earthquake that opened up and swallowed them and that there was a great gulf and that part of the reason that the Jordan River runs into this place and forms the Dead Sea is not only were they burned and not only were they buried, but then they were swallowed by the waters of the Dead Sea. We don't know. Because we still haven't found it. (laughs) Peter says God made an example of the, to those who afterward would live ungodly. What? Peter's theological position is that God judged them so that we who are living would wake up and be warned. You know, punishment for the unrighteous is not much of a priority in modern preaching. In the first service, people got up and walked out. What would cause us? What would create in our hearts a deep, deep desire to neglect, to ignore, to simply rewrite Bible history in order to make God's judgments go away? It's the uncomfortable reality of our own personal sin. In verse 7, Peter writes, and delivered righteous Lot. He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. By the way, the word translated oppressed or vexed means to wear down, kata. And in the passive, to be oppressed or distressed. Uh, Here we might think of the word that there's this constant pressure. There's this constant eroding. There's this constant presence. The filthy conduct of the wicked began to wear. It weared over and over again. It began. 
began to vex him and wear at him and wear at him. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and then hearing their lawless deeds. In verse 8, the word translated torment is different from the word translated oppressed in verse 7. Here, the word is basanidza, which means to examine by torture. We might even think of this as a kind of a moral enhanced interrogation. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is this sense in which you're not just simply put out. You're not just simply vexed. You're not just simply troubled. But you become literally horrified at the evil and the wickedness. You become nauseous. You, your skin begins to crawl. Your hair stands on end. Now, the book of Genesis, by the way, doesn't seem to indicate, at least it doesn't paint a picture to me, that Lot was a strong man, but a weak man. Not a firm believer, but a compromised believer. If anything, Lot seems to have a limited amount of spine. And little concern about immorality. He winds up drunk on the day after the end of the world in an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters. That doesn't sound like the president of the Evangelical Association. So how is it that Peter paints Lot in such glowing terms? Do you remember Abraham's prayer for the righteous in the city and for Lot specifically? He's rescued because a person interceded for him and prayed for him. And a miraculous intervention provided at least the reality because he knew and was able to embrace the true revelation of the true God. Here, the word righteous may not mean a perfect person. It could mean a good man, a decent man in particular, in reference to the other people in the city. When my father died... I told a story to some of the friends of my father about two Italian guys named Guido and, and Marcello. And Guido was a drug dealer and a pimp and a trafficker and, and, and sex. He was the most wicked, the most terrible person that you might imagine. And when Guido died... His brother, Marcello, came to the priest and he says, look, I will give you a hundred thousand dollars if you tell the people that my brother Guido was a saint. And the priest said, well, your brother ran all of the drugs in the city. Your brother trafficked in prostitution and drugs. But if you give me $100,000 just by simply saying he's a saint, that's what you want to hear. That's right. So the priest gets up. Guido here. He was one of the most wicked people that this town has ever seen. He trafficked in drugs, prostitution. But compared to his brother Marcello, he was a saint.
whatever else's flaws were. When God brought judgment on that wicked, evil society, it was swift and it was sure and it was complete. But God saved his own. Maybe the more important question we need to ask is, are you? Are you upset by what you see around you? Are you grieved by sin? Are you tormented as you see your world slip deeper and deeper into an immoral chasm of wickedness? Do you take heart and comfort and courage knowing that one day God is going to make everything right? Or do you live in a certain dread, a fearful expectation that you might be included in the population that will experience judgment? Do you believe that God will punish the wicked? Do you believe that God will rescue the righteous? God rescued Noah and his family. God rescued Lot and most of his family. Lot wasn't sinless, but he was saved. Are you grieved over sin or just tired of the social statistics? Are you invested in the market, not the financial market, the drug market, the sex market, the sin market? Crime rates climb as addicts attempt to feed their habit. Ponzi schemes work because there's a proliferation of greed. Pornography generates more income than baseball, football, and basketball. Every football game that will be played this year, every basketball game that will be played this year, every baseball game that will be played this year will make less money than the pornography industry. I know what you're thinking. Well, what's the harm of a little fun between consenting adults? Well, do you ever think about the 800,000 people who live in our world who are illegally trafficked against their will each and every year? Do you understand that 50% of these people are children? Do you understand that 70% of the women who are sold into sexual slavery, they become chained to beds of horror? The statistics don't come from focus on the family. But from the United States State Department, according to the FBI, the new slavery, human trafficking is the fastest growing segment of organized crime. One hundred thousand human beings are being trafficked right here inside of America. Babies are sold into slavery globally, sometimes for less than a hundred dollars. Can you imagine? Can you imagine watching a transaction take place as a mother sells her baby for less than a hundred American dollars? Virginity is sold to traffickers to the highest bidder. Children are forced to perform sexual acts. According to the Secretary General of the UN, two million girls are brutally circumcised. That's one every 15 seconds. 5,000 honor killings are reported each and every year. Every 14 seconds, a child is orphaned by AIDS. 19 million women live with HIV AIDS. Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, surf the net. How much abuse, how much cruelty, how much injustice are you willing to experience until you are wounded at the very core of your being? 
We live in a world where we celebrate sin and we investigate righteousness. We prosecute homeschoolers. We persecute the righteous. We promote rebellion. People no longer simply question God's word. They despise it. They despise it. Wait a minute. Did you feel it? Was that a tremor in your soul? Was that a twinge of conscience? Is God moving in you to make a difference? Are you able to see how far human beings have distanced themselves from their creator? No wonder Billy Graham said the most prominent place in hell is reserved for those who are neutral on the great issues of life. There's no greater issue than that sinners need a savior. In verse 9, look what it says. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of punishment. Look at verse 9. In this one verse, Peter has a glad word for the saint and a sad word for the sinner. Then, the opening word, then, connects the if of verse 2, the if of verse 4, the if of verse 5, the if of verse 6, the if of verse 7. If the Lord, if the Lord, if the Lord has done all of these things in the past, if the Lord has not ignored the angels, if the Lord has not ignored the ancient world, if the Lord has not ignored Sodom and Gomorrah, does it make sense to you that he's going to ignore false teachers and false teaching? If the Lord has done all of this in the past, what might we expect in the present? And you may find this so hard to believe, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The people hearing these words or reading these words took great comfort and great joy knowing that God keeps records of our tears and our suffering and our affliction and our persecution. How is it that the drug trafficker or the sex slave trafficker can come to the end of a dark road or a wicked circumstance and wonder whether or not there is a way out. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Who are the godly? They're not the people who are better than me and better than you. The godly are the simple people who, by grace and mercy, have come to realize that they're sinners in need of a savior. And to reserve the unjust under punishment. Who are the unjust? Well, the unjust are those people who are not justified. The unjust are those people who have rejected God and rebelled against his provision of grace and mercy. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Lot was the object of Abraham's prayer and the supernatural intervention of an angel. Anthony Hakama wrote, the death of Jesus means the verdict which God will pronounce over us on the day of judgment has been brought into the present. We therefore do not need to fear the judgment day. Christians don't need to fear the judgment day. Because Jesus Christ has been judged on the cross of Calvary. Do you know what Noah and Lot had in common? They were both surrounded by people convinced, convinced that if there really is a God, he's not the kind of God that Adam talked about or that Enoch walked with. Both Noah and Lot had this in common. They lived in a generation where the revelation of God was not thought to be real and didn't think to matter. Noah and Lot were surrounded by people convinced that judgment was a concept embraced by religious fanatics and foolish prudes who neglected pleasure and it made no sense at all to them. Noah and Lot were surrounded by people who ignored the warning and then laughed at God's revelation. And if they believed anything at all, if they were firmly convinced of anything at all, they were convinced that they would never be the objects of his wrath. That they would never be recipients of his perfect punishment. And Peter reminds us that God is never changing and that God has rescued the righteous in every generation and he's punished the wicked in the past. And that they will experience a day of accounting and a day of judgment. But I'll be honest with you. It wasn't the threat of heaven that brought me to a place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the onus that judgment was hanging over my head, but rather the possibility that God could love somebody like me. And save somebody like me. A person who was under a sentence of death deservedly. And the very fact that God loves us. That when Jesus said, for God so loved the world, not hated it, that God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. That the gospel and Jesus didn't happen in order to condemn a world, but that the world was already condemned. In one of his Friday lectures to his college students, Spurgeon, the pastor, told his students that when you preach about God's grace, you should have a face that reflects the sweetness of God. And when you preach on hell, your regular face will do. To reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. These are those who are under the blanket of sin, rebellion and unbelief. C.S. Lewis wrote. I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside 
No one is going to wake up in hell surprised. Everyone who wakes up in hell will understand that their rebellion and their rejection has its just consequences. But nobody has to go to hell. There is a provision. For Noah, it was an ark. For Lot, it was an angel. For you, it's Jesus. It really is. You will go to heaven on God's terms. Or you will go to hell on your own terms. Peter Kreeft said the national anthem they sing in hell is, I did it my way. Heavenly Father, I do pray that with just a spoonful of sugar, we might help the medicine go down. That if the Bible is true, that God punishes the wicked and redeems the righteous, then rather than always embrace a lengthy discussion of heaven and hell, why can't we have a talk about who the wicked are and who the righteous are? Lord, we know that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous, no, not one. That even Noah and even Lot were the special recipients of a supernatural grace and a miraculous intervention. And that you, our Lord, has sent Jesus Christ to be a supernatural intervention so that we need not perish in our sin. So that we can experience hope and love and mercy and grace. That we can escape the judgment we so deserve. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, like the ark of old, you would bear them over the treacherous waters. And like a heavenly angel, you will grab hold of the inside of their heart and you would take them out of harm's way. Lord, I pray that they would be not so much terrified at the prospect of going to hell, but intrigued at the possibility of being loved forever. And again, Lord, I pray that they would come to you. I pray that they would pray the prayer I prayed so long ago. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Lord, I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that the satisfying solution to my wickedness has been satisfied at the cross of Calvary and that I don't have to ever worry about going to hell. That I can experience hope and love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and redemption in Jesus. Save my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.